Creatures trying to survive as the world around them burns express their fears, their anger and their hopes in Naming the Beasts, the visceral new poetry collection by Auckland writer Elizabeth Morton. In the world of the poems, habitat destruction and climate change have turned the planet into a war zone, but all may not be lost. Elizabeth puts herself in the skin and minds of animals from hens and cows to native birds, pangolins and one of her favourite creatures, wolves. There's a lot of first person and um, it's kind of omnipresent in these poems, but I feel like doing that makes it easier to attack the big sort of philosophical concepts without losing intimacy of the personal. And there are some things from my life there. So um, that does sort of feed into the kind of visceral pump of writing and um, they sort of came thick and fast, this lot. Some of the themes... Are there, you know, Mars said leave only footprints. My carbon footprint is a kilometre across and six miles deep. There's definitely a lot of ecological angst and it's sort of where my head is at at the moment. I think many people's heads are at that place at the moment. I started writing the poetry um, around the time of the Australian bushfires. So that tipped me into, you know, the sky was orange and um, it was hard not to not to write about it. I'm interested in sort of temporality, the sort of concept of time passing um, and our mortality. I'm interested in um, truth-making and what is true, what is real. Um, and sometimes that's a pretty hard hard thing to suss out. And also, I guess, you know, along with the ecological angst, just the harm and suffering that's kind of integral to being a human in the world which is something I personally struggle with. Because we're animals too. We're beasts we too, right? We are animals. We are animals. And so I was trying to go for that kind of real embodied vision of what it is to be a human. We're not just brains and vats, you know. We're sort of, we're stuck in these bodies. And we face dilemmas. I mean, I've just a couple of lines here from one of your early poems. Would I save Syria or my dog, my sister or the trade towers? That whole poem is full of these really gnarly dilemmas. Yeah, I think those thought experiments are hard because, you know, we we value so dearly what's proximate to us, but there are things far afield, you know, that, I mean, in a strictly utilitarian way, you know, we should be helping more people, but um, it's really hard, you know, pitting things that are personally relevant and um, remind us of ourselves versus those things that are more distant. I'll talk wolf, you say, and metaphors are for pussies, which is a fantastic title yeah, yeah. For, uh, for a poem. But what are some of the other animals? I mean, you really you go from domestic through to um, you know, European creatures and our very own. But are there any animals that you most strongly identify with? I think the cows keep coming back. I have ox as well, which was just my way of kind of getting around using too many cows. Um, I think because they're so much part of the New Zealand landscape. What else do I have? I've got I've got birds, I've got crows and buzzards sort of circling the carnage, you know, animals that sort of bear witness, animals that are kind of unwitting predators. So the wolf is kind of in that camp. And I've got an elephant that's kind of blundering and animals that can't help themselves. When I try to meditate, the water buck explodes. I also found a really powerful one. This, this line, there is a stampede of water buck inside me. Bladder hoof and gut bleat. My heartbeat keeps pace as they skip river and ravine. Again, when I come back to this word visceral, you know, when you're writing, does your heart beat? You know, how, how far in do you go? These animals that you put in such 
terrible, dangerous situations, most of them. Yeah, well, it's my my way of putting myself in those situations, I guess, vicariously. But, um, I mean, I'm very much a person who lurks in my own head. And so it's quite a thrill to be embodied and sort of taking on these animals to to kind of be in situations that are much more... I'm quite risk-averse, so it's quite great to put myself in situations where I'm being a bit audacious and, yeah. Well, while you do have a lot of hens, I've noticed, that's a common theme too. You are also talking about many of our own species, our birds, of course. And I mean, what, what are your concerns for them? What have you seen, what have you read uh, that, that you've built into the warnings that are throughout Naming the Beasts? Like, I go down to Waiheke Island quite a lot and um, looking at the sort of the housing going up there and the eradication of our, our natural spaces and the bush, even out the far end of Waiheke. And um, I was seeing kaka and things like that, but, you know, my fear is that these creatures are going to be sort of displaced or, like, their fields of habitat are going to be so limited that we're not going to, we're not going to be able to see them in our lives again. You know, it's sad. I do get a little despondent about all that and um, I was quite inspired by Robert McFarlane who wrote a book called Landmarks. He's a big advocate of sort of nature words and kind of keeping those words alive, keeping the lexicon of the environment active in our minds because um, we're losing the language of nature. I think there's a word called glisk, which is kind of the gleaming of a campfire, you know, and things like that, that, you know, with our, with our little iPhones and our, probably our LED torches and stuff, we, we don't quite appreciate. I've been concentrating on the beasts of your collection, but you write so much also of the landscape. I mean, it might be a dying hickory tree or yeah. eucalyptus. Uh, so we can't have one without the other. We can't save our endangered wildlife without also saving their environment. It's not going to, it's not going to work unless we put every, everything in zoos. Absolutely, absolutely. I love sort of creating those scenes, you know, with the hillocks and the, the piers and the kind of seascapes and fields and other places everything else exists upon and um, so contingent on that. So many killer lines in this collection. Oh, brother, this is an ugly way to unlearn hope. And that phrase, unlearn hope, kind of undid me. Hope keeps you going when you forego it entirely. That's it. What's the point, right? Mm. I feel like I spent some of my 20s trying to unlearn hope. I was so ideologically kind of driven as an adolescent, I thought I was going to live in a mud hut in the Amazon rainforest and save the world. But my 20s, I think I was confronted by the fact I'm just a person, you know, and... um, trying to unlearn that kind of, uh, I don't know, I've, I've come back round to hope. It's, it's happening again for me, but I did spend about a decade trying to sort of unpick that. This sounds like it is a word, immunohistochemistry. That is a scientific term, right? It is. So I, I actually um, study neuroscience at the moment. So occasionally I get things coming from, um, from my studies that kind of land in poems and sometimes they're, they're kind of a bit sparse of context and things like that. But the language of science is so rich and um, I, I love all that. I, I, I think I've got a hippocampus in there somewhere and things like that, you know, I, dendrites. And it's just so, um, so beautiful. The brain is a beautiful organ. Climate change 
um, which of course is, is what you're referencing throughout the collection. I sense your frustration, you say, in fire. My uncle is a nice man who thinks climate change is what politicians do when they're bored. You know, yeah, so there is this yeah. great, still this great denial. Or Absolutely. what can we do? So you just, as you say, you unlearn hope, you give up hope. But you, you mentioned for all these thoughts that you've been giving, all this thinking, all this writing, at the end of the collection, you are hopeful. I am hopeful. I sort of vacillate wildly between being a misanthrope and loving people. I think there's a magic to people. And even if the world is a, is a destroyed place, I think there is a lot of good in a lot of people. And intentions are good and we're all flawed and we're in denial and feeling impotent in the face of things. But um, people want not to do harm and people want not to be harmed and... Um, we are ultimately animals, though, and it, it makes um, it makes that kind of moral mindset so hard to kind of live. Naming the beasts. The planes went down the same day Romulus and Remus were butchered. Winter. And I walked barefoot through the cattle grass, mood to Romulus and Remus, and they said, How do you do? As though it were an ordinary Tuesday as though the stock truck parked outside the old school house were just a metaphor for everything thrust into double digits. The sky was cheesecake. Sweet gums were balled to skin and bone. Wind licked the blue grass, retelling comedies only the weather sees. What world is this? Romulus and Remus were the hot breath rising from the schoolhouse kettle, the two sparrows that knocked against the car windshield on that lonely highway. They were a pair of headlights. They were possums spent on nightfall, giddy with the casual light of passing tankers. Romulus and Remus loped onto the truck ramp, said, How do you do? And I, and I, and I, I walked barefoot through embers only to turn back halfway, to shrug at the ordinary Tuesday, to let what happens happen. I hid from the bellowing, under husk and chaff, in the noise of harrower and winnower. Later, I sat in the diner, watched two planes go down on a city into the stubble of people and places, just doing what people and places do. As though little men falling from windows were just a metaphor for everything haunted by what we never fix. Elizabeth Morton's poetry collection is called Naming the Beasts and it's published by Otago University Press.